Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for this great privilege that we have to gather in your name. And Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you and glorify you. You are a good and a great God. And even as the scriptures say, who sent his only son to die on a cross for our sin, to rise from the dead for our justification, to ascend into heaven. And Lord, we know he's seated right there, making intercession for us. And Heavenly Father, I pray for each and every person within the sound of my voice. Lord, I pray that we could draw near to you as we know, understand, and embrace our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. John chapter 8, where we left off, in verse 25 it says, Then they said to him, Who are you? And Jesus said to them, Just what I've been saying to you from the beginning, I have many things to say and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true, and I speak to the world those things which I heard from him. They did not understand that he spoke to them of the Father. Then Jesus said to them, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. And that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father taught me, I speak these things. And he who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please him. As he spoke these words, many believed in him. Now, in the 8th chapter of John, you can see that it's fairly long. It's almost 60 verses. In the first 20 verses, we see contrasts. Contrast between light and darkness in verse 21 through 30. The contrast between heaven and earth. Between verses 31 and 40, the contrast between freedom and slavery. And the children of God and the children of Satan later on in the chapter from verses 41 through 47. Honor and dishonor, 48 through 59. So throughout the chapter, he's making a series of contrasts and comparisons. And Jesus has already made the comparisons of his critics and himself. He says that the critics are of the earth. He is from heaven. They are of the world. He is not of the world. Remember, we've already learned what the world is. It's the cosmos. It is the world that stands in opposition to God. And then the religious leaders ask Jesus, quite literally, the million-dollar question, Who are you? In verse 25. And the response of Jesus is interesting. Jesus reaffirms his earlier claims. He then points to some needed correction in their thinking. And then he points them to the cross. And then he points them to his own character. How will they be able to see? How will they be able to recognize? How will they be able to realize his true nature, his true identity? And in the passage, we're given several clues. The first clue is that the best source of information about the identity of Jesus comes from Jesus. And number two, the identity of Jesus can't be understood apart from the cross. 
apart from the sacrifice of Jesus. And the identity of Jesus cannot be properly understood apart from the concept that he is both the judge and that he will provide judgment to the planet Earth. A day of judgment is promised. A day of judgment will come. And the day of judgment, the identity of Jesus will be clear. It will be unmistakable. And number four, the identity of Jesus is contained in the character of Christ at the end where he says, I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Everyone in every age has had an imperfect and incomplete obedience to God. Adam, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, David, Daniel, but not Jesus. The obedience of Jesus was unblemished, perfect, continuous, complete. And so Jesus cannot be understood apart from his claims, apart from the cross, apart from his character. And so it begins. It begins with the basic question. Look again in verse 25. Then they said to him, who are you? What a great question, huh? Who are you, Jesus? My friend Lee Strobel, in his excellent book, The Case for the Real Jesus, devotes some 270 plus pages asking that question and answering that question. Who is the real Jesus? He notes that a search for Jesus on Amazon.com yielded 175,986 books. Google Jesus Christ. You know what you get? 165 million references. Strobel quotes Newsweek's website on faith. And he gets answers to the question, who is the real Jesus? Here's, here's a list of some of the quotes. Jesus is real in the sense that he exists for those who want him to exist. In other words, he's the product of wishful thinking. Jesus was one of a thousand Jews murdered by the Romans for threatening Roman rule. Here's the historical Jesus. Jesus is my personal higher power. He helps me stay sober day after day. Jesus was every man. His name could have as well been Morris. Too bad he was in male form this time around. Better luck next time. Here's another one. I believe Jesus is the Son of God. But I also believe that I'm also the son of God. Jesus is an enlightened being. Here's another one. Jesus was a mere man that we should pity more than revile or worship. He suffered from what contemporary psychologists now know to be delusions of grandeur, bipolar disorder, probably acute schizophrenia. Here's another list. Jesus is a fairy tale for grown-ups. Unfortunately, he's a fairy tale that leads people to bomb clinics, despise women, denigrate reason, embrace greed. Any behavior can be justified when you have Jesus as your eternal get out of jail card, unquote. Strobel then takes a section from Paul Copan's book, True for You, But Not for Me. He quotes, so who was Jesus? 
Was he a wandering Hasid or holy man, as Geza Vermes and Ian Wilson propose? Was he a peasant Jewish cynic, like John Dominic Crossan alleges? Was he a magician who sought to lead Israel astray, as the Talmud holds? Was he a self-proclaimed prophet who died in disillusionment, as Albert Schweitzer maintains? Was he the first century personage whose purported miracles and divinity were myths or fabrications by the early church? as David F. Strauss, Rudolf Bultmann, and John Hicks suggest, or was he, as the gospel asserts, the Christ, the Son of the living God? My granny wasn't a philosopher or a philosophy major, but she was filled with quips. My granny used to say, the difference between genius and stupidity is that genius has its limits. She's right. Stupidity doesn't seem to ever come to an end. Speculations about Jesus. Is he a magi? Is he a madman? Is he a maniac? Is he a menace? Is he a Martian? Yeah, some people believe that he's an extraterrestrial. From the Pleiades or Orion, an ascended master. Now think about that. Magi, madman, maniac, Martian, but Messiah? Come on, Messiah? To those of you who want a thoughtful biblical answer to some of the most troubling challenges that are being made about the identity and the nature of Jesus, I would really recommend Lee Strobel's book, The Case for the Real Jesus. And in that book, he addresses the so-called scholarly challenges that the Bible's portrait of Jesus can't be trusted because the church tampered with the text. The challenge... Um, that new explanations have refuted Jesus' resurrection, that Christianity's beliefs about Jesus were copied from pagan religions, that he was an imposter who failed messianic prophecies, and that people should be able to pick and choose whatever they want to believe about Jesus. But look at his answer. Look at his answer at the end of verse 25. And Jesus said to them, just what I've been saying to you from the beginning. Bible scholars point out that the Greek passage presents many challenges. One Bible scholar says, no one can really be sure what the Greek means. It could mean even what I have told you from the beginning. Or it could mean, as the Revised Standard Version says, primarily, essentially, I am what I am telling you. Here's another one. I declare to you that I am the beginning. How is it that I even speak to you at all? Not trying to suggest, why should we continue this conversation? Why are we having this conversation? Another meaning, everything I am saying to you now is only the beginning. In other words, everything that I've told you up till now is true. But guess what? This is only the beginning. The answer that Jesus gives shocks and embarrasses the religious leaders. I am just what I claim to be. I am who I have claimed to be from the beginning. I am all that I claim to be. Let me ask you kind of a hard question. Shouldn't be that hard, though. Where is the best source of information if somebody wanted to know the truth about you? Would you say, go to my husband, go to my wife, go to my children? 
wouldn't you want the benefit of the doubt? Wouldn't you be prepared to say, if you want to know the truth about me, ask me. And Jesus is wanting the same consideration. If you really want to know the truth about me, ask me. Was Jesus really Israel's Messiah? Did he really claim to be God? Or did clever disciples simply put these words in Jesus' mouth for us to read them centuries later? And here's the problem with the criticism that Jesus' disciples put the words in Jesus' mouth. The problem is it doesn't fit the facts. John claimed to be an eyewitness to the facts, that he could tell the difference between fact and myth. And John had no reason, listen carefully, John had no reason to deify Jesus. John was an observant Jew. He would have known that the outrageous claim that Jesus is God would lead to anger and persecution and death and even damnation. If the disciples were to create a Messiah of their own imagination, it makes much more sense that they would invent a Messiah who was more consistent with first century expectations. John Stuart Mill in his three essays on religion wrote, But who among his disciples or among their proselytes were capable of inventing the sayings ascribed to Jesus, imagining his life, imagining the character revealed in the Gospels? Mill is right. You couldn't dream up Jesus. You couldn't invent this guy. Jesus discourages the would-be religious leaders from making things up about himself. Note what Jesus doesn't say. I am whatever you want me to be. Is that one of the options? I don't think so. Hannah Rosen in the Washington Post wrote, quote, Americans write their own Bible. They fashion their own God. And then they talk incessantly about him, unquote. Skeptics and critics point out, well, you know, Jesus never said, I am God. Well, a careful reading of the New Testament points out several things. Jesus' associates identify himself with the God of the Bible. Jesus claims the same prerogatives as God. Ken Samples observes in his book, without a doubt, quote, Jesus equates himself with the Father, Yahweh. To know Jesus is to know God. John 14, 7. If you knew me, you would know my Father. To see Jesus is to see God. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father, John 14, 9. To encounter Jesus is to encounter God. Believe me when I say, I am in the Father and the Father is in me, John 14, 11. Samples further points out, to trust Jesus is to trust God. Trust in God. Trust also in me, John 14, 1. To welcome Jesus is to welcome God. Whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me, Mark 9, 37. To honor Jesus is to honor God, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father, John 5, 23. To hate Jesus is to hate 
God, he who hates me, my fa- hates my father as well, it says in John 15, 23. To come to Jesus is to come to God. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's what it says in John 14, 6. To love Jesus is to love God. John 14, 21. He who loves me will be loved by my Father. That's pretty clear. And so here's the bogus objections. Look again in verse 26. I have many things to say and to judge concerning you. But he who sent me is true. And I speak to the world those things which I heard from him. And look at verse 27. They did not understand that he spoke to them of the Father. I need to repeat it. They did not understand that he spoke to them of the Father. The passage is really important because it reveals many of the hearers didn't even understand what Jesus was saying. Now think about this for a moment. Jesus is right there. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. There has never been, nor will there ever be, a more gifted communicator than Jesus. And still they didn't understand. Do you get frustrated when you're talking to your mom, your dad, your brother, your sister, your next door neighbor, your friends and your family about Jesus? And you sit there and you go, do you understand the words that are coming out of my mouth? And they're looking at you and they go, I don't get what you're saying. I have many things to say and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true. And I speak to the world those things which I heard from him. The reason why this becomes important is he's saying, look, the father has sent me and the words that I'm speaking come from God. Here's what he's saying. Make no mistake about it. He's claiming to be God's spokesman. He's claiming to have been sent by God and to speak for God. And so then he corrects their thinking. You know, in John chapter 6, verse 63, earlier it says, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you, their spirit and, and their life. In John chapter 7, verse 16, it says, Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine or my teaching is not mine, but him who sent me. John twelve forty nine. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me command that I should say, on what I should say and what I should speak. In John twelve fifty, it says, And I know that his command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. Listen carefully. Does that sound like he ripped somebody off? Or that he plagiarized or stole the information? On a recent trip to Israel, we were visiting the ancient site of the Qumran community and and a bunch of us were in the visitor's center when we were watching a film where the Qumran caves were. This is the place 
where the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. And this is the place where the Essene community um, basically lived. And over and over again, people have suggested that Jesus was influenced by the Essene community. As a matter of fact, the film came right out and said that John the Baptist and Jesus were influenced, perhaps even instructed by this mystical order. Over and over again, people have suggested Jesus was influenced by Indian mystics, by Hindu philosophy, by Egyptian mysteries, by by Zoroastrian teachings about good and evil, light and darkness, and the cult of Mithras, and the Osirian cult of the dead. Over and over again, I hear the theories are repeated, but what all of them have in common is that all of them deny what Jesus has just said. Jesus could have easily have said, yes, I got all of this cool stuff from Indian mystics in India. Hey, you know what? I was couldn't help but reading the Tibetan book of the dead. And I thought, this is kind of cool. But he doesn't get any of this information from them. Jesus claims his teachings come from God in heaven. And you know what? There's not one. Listen carefully. There's not one shred of evidence that Jesus borrowed ideas, plagiarized ideas, appropriated ideas. He claims that his teachings come from God. It's interesting to me that it never seems to bother the critics that their contention that Jesus borrowed his teachings from various sources has no basis in fact and no convincing evidence. But people are quick to say it. And so, how do you explain this? How do you explain his life? How do you explain his claims? How do you explain his authority? How do you explain the messianic prophecies that apply to him? How do you explain the miracles that he performs? Think carefully for a moment. The miracles of Jesus, the miracles listed in the book of the Gospel of John. So far, what have we seen? Water into wine, feeding of the 5,000, opening of blind eyes, walking on the water. We remember John's gospel has already referred to Jesus as the living word, the witness of John the Baptist. He's claimed to be the light of the world. He's claimed to be the word made flesh. He's claimed to be the lamb of God. He's claimed to be the promised Messiah. He's claimed to be the king of Israel. He's claimed to be the source of the new birth. He's demonstrated God's love. He's claimed to be the living water. He's claimed to be the object of worship. He's claimed to be the source of healing. He's claimed to be the bread of life. And that's only the first seven chapters. We're not even done yet. If Jesus is just another religious leader, then how do you explain his conduct and his character, his teachings, his miracle, his resurrection from the dead? No wonder he says in verse 26, Right now, you're evaluating who I am and what I'm saying. But look at verse 26. There's going to come a time when I'll have something to judge. Look at the end of verse 26. To judge concerning you. 
Isn't it interesting that right now we have this awesome, awesome privilege? You can sit in the seat. You can listen to these words. You can listen to the claims. You can evaluate. You can sit there in your seat and ask and answer the question, who is he? And by the way, you have several choices, don't you? He is who he claims to be. He is who you want him to be. He claims to be God's spokesperson. He claims to be the judge from heaven. He claims to be the person who's appointed to judge all matters, including all matters concerning you. Part of the role of Jesus is to serve as both spokesperson of God, but he also invites us to consider that he is the one who will also pronounce judgment. Do you understand what he's saying? His first mission is to proclaim the message of salvation. But make no mistake about it, there is another mission involved with Jesus, and that is he will judge human beings. In John chapter 5, verse 22, it says, For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. The Bible says that one day we will stand before Jesus, and we will give an account of every thought, of every word, of every deed, of our unbelief, of our rebellion. And one day everyone will have to explain their rebellion and and rejection. I went and saw the uh, documentary uh, of Ben Stein. What's the name of it? Uh, Expelled. And there's there's a scene in the movie where Richard Dawkins, the famous atheist, is asked by Ben Stein. He's asked the question, let's just for a moment just assume, again, just for purposes of of just discussion and illustration, uh, um, Dr. Dawkins, let's just assume that you're wrong and that one day you will have to stand before God and give an account of your life and you will stand before the living and true God. What will you say to him? And the most articulate, well-known atheist of our time said these words. He said, how was it that you made yourself Why did you conceal yourself? Why didn't you make yourself known? What? What? What is it going to take? What are you willing to accept as evidence? Ben Stein asked Dawkins, well, how do you explain the origin of the universe? And he, he talked about ionized particles creeping over the surface of crystals which form life. Einstein goes, what? What? I I told you. Isn't that good enough? Einstein goes, now tell me again. I already told you and you didn't believe me. Okay. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Ionized particles crawling over the surface of crystals somehow coagulated and and formed life. And you think, I have a lot of faith? When Jesus spoke, many people didn't understand that he was God's spokesman and that he was God's judge. And people still have a hard time grasping that. We live in a world where saying that something is right and something is wrong has fallen out of favor. As if to say, 
well, look, you have your belief and I have my belief. But look what it says in John chapter 8, verse 28. Then Jesus said to them, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing of myself, but my Father taught me, I speak these things. When will people grasp, comprehend, understand, appreciate what Jesus is saying? At what point will they understand his identity, who he claims to be? Look what Jesus says about himself. When you lift up the Son of Man. Do you have to be a Bible scholar to figure out what he's talking about? What do you suppose it means when Jesus says, when I am lifted up? You know what it means. He's making reference to his future death on the cross, isn't he? He's talking about being lifted up. He's talking about being nailed to a piece of wood and suspended between heaven and earth as if the cross will awaken human beings to the glorious love and the salvation of God because that's what the cross does. Don't you understand what's happening? He's talking about that the revelation of his identity is found in something more powerful than just his words. But it will be his deeds. When you see Jesus lifted up, you will understand the identity of the Son of Man. Now, note even the word the Son of Man. Why does he call himself the Son of Man? Why doesn't he say, the ascended master who contains the DNA codings from the galaxy Orion? Do you know why? Because he's not an extraterrestrial being who came down from the clouds in order to reveal truth. He calls himself the Son of Man because he identifies with human beings. Jesus, where are you? Jesus, who are you? Just who I say I am. How can we know for sure? Look at the cross. When you lift up the Son of Man. Do you know why the Son of Man will have to be lifted up? Because you've stumbled. You've fallen. You stumbled and you fell and you lost your way. You stumbled and you fell and you stumbled in a dark place, in a dark moment. You stumbled and you fell. And because you stumbled and you fell, he would have to be lifted up. James Boyce said, the cross means this, Jesus taking our place to satisfy the demands of God's justice and turning away God's wrath. You stumbled. You fell. No wonder Paul would write in Romans chapter 5, here in his love, in that while we were yet sinners, Jesus died. The cross becomes the perfect picture of the revelation of a real God who loves you and died for you. Horatius Bonner wrote, "'Twas I that shed the sacred blood. I nailed him to the tree.'" 
I crucified the Christ of God. I joined the mockery of all the shouting multitude. I feel that I am one. And in that din of voices rude, I recognize my own. Around the cross, the throng I see, mocking the sufferers groan. Yet still my voice, it seems to be as if I mocked alone. Then Jesus said to them, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know. Until you see Jesus clearly on the cross, until you understand the sacrifice of the cross, Until you see him dying for your sin as your substitute to satisfy God, you'll never understand who he is. So you still don't understand? You still don't believe? You still don't see him on the cross? No wonder Dietrich Bonhoeffer was able to write, The cross is God's truth about us. And therefore, it is the only power which can make us truthful. When we know the cross, we're no longer afraid of the truth. Do you know why I suppose there are so many different opinions about the identity of Jesus? Because so many people are afraid of the truth. Later, next week, when we get to verse 32, you'll understand a little bit better when Jesus says, and you shall know the truth. And the truth shall make you free. C.S. Lewis wrote, The Son of God became a man to enable men to become the sons of God. And all around the world, people celebrate the incarnation, the birth of Jesus, and they remember the claim that God became a man. Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, For in Christ all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form, unquote. Jesus is God and man. Forgiving sin and reconciling sinners. And in verse 29, look what it says. And he who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please him. How can someone discover and accept the truth about Jesus? They have to consider his claims. They have to consider the cross. And they have to consider his character. And he who sent me is with me. The Father is with me. The Father hasn't left me alone. And look, read it for yourself. I always do those things that please him. Do you think it would please the Father for him to make up something about himself? Would it please the Father for him to hide his identity, to falsify his his identity, to lie about who he is? I always do those things that please him. If Jesus were a liar, if his followers were liars, how, by any stretch of the imagination, could that be pleasing to God? 
John Warwick Montgomery had a famous quip. He used to say that if Albert Einstein were picked up for shoplifting, E equals MC square would still be true. Because the theory of relativity isn't based on the character of Einstein. But the reality of the identity of Jesus is so closely linked to his character that if Jesus is someone or something other than what he says, it is linked to his character because here's what he's saying. I've come from God and I'm telling you the truth and I've always told you the truth and I continue to tell you the truth. The New Testament reveals the matchless character of Jesus. And his character is as much a testimony about his claims as his miracles. And remember what the Bible says about the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. But the fruit of the Holy Spirit is exactly the same as the character of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is love. And Jesus is true. And Jesus is obedient. If Jesus were picked up for shoplifting, if Jesus was discovered to be a liar, then the claims of Jesus would be null and void, and his death would be just another death. And look at the beneficial results. At the end, it says in verse 30, as he spoke, as he spoke these words, many believed in him. And we thank God. He was pointing these things out, and it says many believed in him. Many began to understand and appreciate the reality of what he was saying concerning the cross, concerning his claims, concerning his character. Many believed in him. It was Billy Graham who said, there's a vast difference between intellectual belief and total conversion that saves the soul. Just simply acknowledging the belief in your mind doesn't save you. Many believed in him. Sadly, some didn't. G.K. Chesterton said, The point of having an open mind, like having an open mouth, is to close it on something solid. At the risk of being a spoiler, I'm going to flip to the end of my friend Lee Strobel's book, The Case for the Real Jesus, where the facts, logic, and evidence, he, he comes to this conclusion, and I quote, Did scholars discover a radically different Jesus in ancient documents just as credible as the four Gospels? No. Is the Bible's portrait of Jesus unreliable because of mistakes or deliberate changes by scribes through the centuries? No. Have new explanations refuted Jesus' resurrection? No. Were Christian beliefs about Jesus stolen from pagan religions? No. Was Jesus an imposter who failed to fulfill the messianic prophecies? On the contrary, we have compelling evidence that Jesus and Jesus alone matches the fingerprint of the Messiah. Isn't that great? Lee Strobel goes on and he says, quote, Should people be free to pick and choose what they want to believe about Jesus? Obviously. We have the freedom to believe anything we want. 
But just because the United States Constitution provides equal protection for all religions doesn't mean that all beliefs are equally true. Whatever we believe about Jesus can't change the reality of who he is. So why cobble together our own make-believe Jesus to fulfill our own personal prejudices when we can meet and experience the actual Jesus of history and of faith? Oz Guinness on my program once said, although a Christian should believe simply, he shouldn't simply believe. You see, our faith isn't a blind leap in the dark, but it is confidence in the revelation of God and of Jesus. It's a Jesus who fits the facts of history and of evidence. Is Jesus Christ? Is Christianity just a fairy tale for grown-ups? Do you remember reading Lewis Carroll's book, Through the Looking Glass, Alice in Wonderland, when you were a kid? There's a section in the book that goes like this. I can't believe that, said Alice. Can't you, said the queen, in a pitying tone, try again. Draw a long breath and shut your eyes, and Alice laughed. There's no use trying, she said. One can't believe impossible things. I dare say you haven't had much practice, said the queen. Why, when I was younger, I always did it for half an hour a day. Why, sometimes I've believed as many as six impossible things before breakfast. Impossible? Impossible? Maniac? Madman? Menace? Martian? But heaven forbid, heaven forbid that he's the Messiah. But yet it's the only explanation that seems to make sense. C.S. Lewis also said, you, you, never, you never know how much you re- really believe anything until its truth or its falseness becomes a matter of life and death for you. The reality of the identity of Jesus will become a matter of life and death, if not today, someday. And you will see him clearly on the cross. Or you will see him clearly as the magnificent, empowered, eternal judge who knows, understands, comprehends everything about you. But if that's when you come to the realization that Jesus is God's Messiah as he's sitting on his throne, then it will, in fact, have been too late. And that's why, week after week, Sunday after Sunday, time after time, 
I try to move you a little bit closer so that you can see very clearly Jesus on the cross. No wonder Paul said that he didn't seek to know anything among the people that he was teaching except for Jesus and him crucified. Because, again, C.S. Lewis said, I don't believe simply in the Son in order to see, but it is by the Son that I am able to see all things clearly. And when you see Jesus in his claims, and when you see Jesus on the cross, and when you see Jesus in his perfect character, you'll see everything clearly. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that somehow, some way, the veil would be lifted and the ignorance would go away and that the shackles and the chains and the blanket that has been draped over the eyes of the unbeliever would be lifted. And that they would be able to see Jesus clearly. As the lover of our soul. As the giver of life. As our perfect sacrifice. As the forgiver of sins. As the reconciler to the Father. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would move on that heart as they ask and answer the question, Who are you? Lord, I pray that they would come to the the conclusion that so many people came to. Many believed, Lord, and I know that many here believe, but some don't. Lord, I pray that you would lift the chains and the veil and that they would see clearly that Jesus Christ is the Lord. Is that you? Have you come to that place in your life where you not just realize, but recognize Jesus as Lord and Savior, as Savior of your soul and forgiver of your sin? Would you like to? It's easy to do. Realize and recognize your sin. Realize that the reason why Jesus is being lifted up is because you fell down. And you've fallen down in such a way that you can't get up. And the only way that you'll ever be able to be to be to get up is to have Jesus be lifted up in your place. Is that you? Then just slip up your hand and I'll pray for you. You can make the transition from light, from darkness into life, from death into life. You can know him and love him and serve him. Heavenly Father, I pray for each and every person here. I pray that as they ask and answer the question, that they would come up not with doubt and unbelief, but with the satisfying answer to the age-old question, Who is Jesus? In Jesus' name, Amen. Let's stand.